Hello, you're listening to the Dwell on Truth Show. I'm Brenton Powers. If you're listening on KSEO, it is 8 a.m. Time to get up and get ready for church. Quick announcement. Today I will be at Calvary Chapel Aptos. You're welcome to come at 10 a.m. Or if you'd like to just meet us and see what we do out on the streets and beaches, we'll be at Seacliff Beach today at 1.30 p.m. Come on out today. On today's program, I'm going to be sharing verse by verse through the book of Romans. Christ told believers to dwell and abide. Follow my teaching, my word in your life. Be my disciples in word and in deed. Dwell on truth knowing the truth sets you free. Dwell on truth knowing that the truth sets you free. And I hope you are blessed as you listen to the Dwell on Truth teachings through the book of Romans, beginning today in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, and going through most of chapter 2. What I'm about to teach you is going to be very controversial. It shouldn't be controversial for Christians because it's God's word. But these verses teach against what is popular in our day today. So let's read Romans 1, 21 through 25, and then we'll study it verse by verse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now let's go verse by verse, studying God's Word through the Apostle Paul. Notice in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Paul has been speaking about the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God. God in His righteousness has revealed Himself to man, and yet man is in his sinfulness has rejected that knowledge. The whole human race has failed to honor God as God. Some do so by calling themselves atheists, those who say that there is no God, or as they like to define it nowadays, those who say that they don't believe there is a God. But the Bible teaches that they knew God in Romans one twenty one, but they just don't honor Him as God. That is wrong. If we know God, the right response is to honor Him as God. Honor Him for what He is. He's honorable. He's worthy of worship. As Christians, we believe the Scriptures are inspired by God and are true. And so if atheists deny that they know God exists, are we going to believe the atheist 
Or are we going to believe God, who says, although they know God exists, they don't honor him as God. They choose not to call him God. This also applies to those who believe there's some kind of higher power, but don't say that there is a God. This is sinful because creation testifies that there is a creator. And the fact that we have life is evidence that there is a living God who gave us life. And so we should honor him and give thanks to him because it's right, because it's true, and because he is glorious. But instead, man in his unrighteousness denies God, either by saying he doesn't exist, or by saying I don't know if he exists, or by saying something exists but I don't know who he is. So by denying the truth that is evident to all of us, the only other option is to believe a lie. So Paul says in Romans 1.21 that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The Christian worldview is that our minds can be restored from this futile thinking that we inherited from our fathers as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is our reasonable service of worship. But the problem is people are not always reasonable. And in our sin, we sometimes block the truth out of our minds and then our minds become foolish. As Paul says in Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Some of the people that are honored today as being the most wise and intelligent geniuses are fools as far as God is concerned. Romans 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is foolish thinking. And without the knowledge of God, the heart becomes darkened and the mind cannot know anything for sure. Unbelievers have to presuppose that there is a God of truth to be able to explain anything in the world. Without God, atheists would not even be sure that they exist. They can't account for why the world exists. Where did life come from? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? But as Christians, we know the answer. God created all living things. And on the sixth day, he created the land animals and human beings. He didn't create the egg and then not have a chicken there to hatch it and take care of it. He created a full-grown chicken. Just as Adam and Eve, when they were created, they looked like full-grown adults when they're only one day old. And the stars and the moon and the sun he placed in the sky and with the appearance of being a mature universe. And so when people ask, what about the age of the earth? What about the age of the universe? Well, if God can create the trees with fruit on the first day that they were made and a man to be married on the first day he was made and the chicken before the egg, then he can create the stars so that their light reaches the earth on the very first day that they are made. In fact, in the chronology of Genesis, the sun, moon, and stars were created a day after the vegetation on the earth. So it had to be 24-hour days, not millions or billions of years, as some evolutionists would like to teach. But if you buy the theory of evolution, your mind will become futile in its thinking and your heart will become darkened. You will go through a downward spiral, not an upward progression of evolution, but the opposite happens to man who rejects God. He devolves into something lower than what he was created to be. God created man good. But by not honoring God, men become foolish. Their hearts are darkened, and this progression goes on. They become fools, and instead of having God as the glory and purpose for their life, which he should be, they put something else in God's place, which can never fill God's place. So Paul says in Romans 1.23 that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, if you compare the glory of God, who is immortal, with images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals and creeping things, 
You're giving up what's greater for what is lesser. You're giving up the immortal for mortal things. You're giving up true glory for images. You're giving up God for man, or worse, birds, animals, and creeping things. Because man cannot fill the place that God is supposed to have in your life. The first commandment, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. So not being able to sustain the atheist position that there is no God, man naturally gravitates to worship something. And usually, they worship themselves. It goes back to the original lie that Satan told to Eve. When you partake of this fruit, you will be like God. So creating an image to replace God is called idolatry. You could do this literally with your hands by sculpting a statue out of wood, stone, or even gold. But when Paul was in Athens preaching to those who were idolaters, he tried to correct their thinking. In Acts 17 verse 24 and following, he said, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Verse 20. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Since we're created in God's image, we're created as God's offspring to have relationship with our Creator. Yet rejecting our Creator and worshiping instead created things, everything gets out of order. And this begins to affect social relationships. As it says in Romans 1, going on to verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, for the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, what is God's response when man does not want to acknowledge God? If man is not willing to honor God and give thanks to him as God, if man doesn't want a relationship with God, then God will give up that man to what he wants. Be careful what you wish for. If you wish that God wouldn't stop you from sinning because you want to sin, be careful. God has given you a free will and he gives people up to what they desire so that they may see that they will never be satisfied to reject God, to go after other things. Notice how Paul says in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them up. The therefore is an important word connecting the wrath of God that we see in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. You see the connection? How do we see the wrath of God today? We may not be seeing people experiencing wrath in hell today, but we do see people given over to their sexual immorality, impurity, and lusts. In other words, the fact that our societies are getting more and more corrupt and immoral is a sign of the wrath of God, that God is not giving us the grace not to sin. 
It's God that preserves us from being corrupt. And we should not think that we are better than other people, but we should thank God that by His grace we are what we are if we are Christians. Because let's be honest, it's easy to look at a list like this in Romans chapter 1 to feel good about ourselves. Because I'm not an atheist. I'm not an idolater. I'm not sexually immoral. And I'm certainly not a homosexual, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 1, 26 through 28, which we will study next week. But then Paul gives us a list of sins so that all of us could see that we too deserve the wrath of God in verse 29 through 32. So as we conclude this message for tonight, how shall we apply this to our lives? First, if you know God, you should honor God and give thanks to Him. Why don't you do that tonight? Proverbs 3, verse 4 and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He shall direct your path. So acknowledge God. Honor Him as God. Saying, Lord, You are God. You are great. I honor You because You you are holy. You are good. You are beautiful. You are true. And give thanks to God. Say, Lord, I thank you for giving me life and breath and food and a roof over my head. Thank you for showing me the truth about you and about myself. So acknowledge that God is the most wise and ask him for wisdom without doubting and you shall receive wisdom. Let's not exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling created things that are mortal. Let's instead embrace the glory of God and worship him in spirit and in truth by faith rather than by sight and ask the Lord to search your heart and see if there's any evil way in you. Pray that he would reveal his glory to you. The more you know the Lord, the more you will want to worship him. Because the Lord is so glorious, more than we could comprehend or imagine. But one day, we will see him face to face. And when we do, we will bow down and worship him. Don't give up what is great for what is shameful. If you don't want to be given up to the lusts of your hearts, pray that God would take them from you. And the only way that this can happen is if you become born again and he puts within you a new heart with new desires. And this is what is promised in the new covenant. The Lord says through Jeremiah, I will take out a heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh and I will cause you to walk in my ways. Rather than dishonoring your body through improper use of your body, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So the fall of man and the restoration of man both start with worship. Choose this day whom you will serve. If the Lord is God, worship and serve him. If man, animals, and creeping things are God, then you choose what you will worship by what you acknowledge is your God. But I must warn you that if you give up the true and living God, then you will only believe a lie and it will lead to death. And that is not God's will. So he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we should have lived and then to die on the cross as we should have died and then to rise again from the dead in order to give us eternal life. But you must believe because it's through faith that you receive the righteousness of Christ and are justified because through your works, you are condemned, but through faith you are saved. That is the power of the gospel. And that is the message of Romans 1. So may God bless you as you continue to study his word verse by verse. Next time we'll continue. You're listening to Verse by Verse. My name is Brenton Powers. And tonight we're going to continue our study through the letter of Paul to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 26. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So let's
let's open our Bibles and read Romans 1, 26 through 28. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. As we normally do, I'm going to teach verse by verse through this section of Scripture. But first, I want to remind you why we do this. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching and correction and reproof and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and may be complete. God has called me to preach the Word, and that includes teaching Scriptures like this. But what I'm about to teach you is going to be very controversial. It shouldn't be controversial for Christians because it's God's Word. But these verses teach against what is popular in our day today. In many countries of the world, homosexuality is celebrated and even protected as a right. Biblical marriage is being undermined by what is called same-sex marriage, which in God's view is not marriage, but it's a detestable sin. And yet because people give up the truth of God, they will cling to the lie. They will believe a lie that God approves or even wants homosexuals to get married. My friends, I'm here to proclaim what God says, not what the spirit of the age says. And God commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin and to turn to the living God through Jesus Christ. Why do we believe that homosexuality is a sin? Because the scriptures clearly teach that it is a sin. Romans 1 verse 26 through 28 clearly says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So evangelicals have quite rightly identified homosexual activity as sin. And there's a backlash against Christian evangelicals today all over Europe and in America, and it's coming more and more. My friends, we need to be grounded in Scripture so we know how to answer those who are trying to get us to compromise the truth with a lie. So let's expound upon Romans 1, 26 through 28 so that we can understand exactly what is Paul saying here. Then no one will be able to twist the scriptures and deceive you. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie is the reason why God gave them up for dishonorable passions in verse 26. Homosexuality doesn't just start by one day someone waking up and thinking, I want to sleep with someone of the same sex as me. No, it starts when someone gives up acknowledging what they know about God. In other words, it's a vertical problem before it's a horizontal problem. And when man doesn't worship God, the next best thing to worship is another man. But it's not good for man to worship man. It only results in immorality. It is idolatry that leads to homosexuality, not just for men, but also for women. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 1.26, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. What kind of relations is he talking about? What is natural for a woman? Well, to desire a man, to be her husband, that they may come together 
and conceive children? So what is Paul saying that is unnatural? When a woman pursues intimate relationships with other women, it's unnatural physiologically in their anatomy. It's unnatural psychologically as a woman is not a helpmate for another woman. And it's unnatural spiritually. Women are created to worship God spiritually. So Paul is speaking against lesbianism in Romans 1.26. And then Paul speaks against another kind of homosexuality, which is called gay today, which really is not gay. Gay implies happy, joyful, gleeful, merriment. But we'll see the result of men sleeping with men is not truly gay. Again, it's the twisting of language to make something bad look good. Romans 1.27, Paul says that the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That is obviously speaking about homosexuality. So if a man and a woman are married, their sexual relationship is natural and it's normal and it's right. Therefore, it is unnatural for a man to lay with another man as he lays with a woman. It is unnormal and it is wrong. That is what God has been saying all along. In Leviticus, God condemns homosexuality in Israel. They were to be stoned in that society, in the kingdom of Israel, because that kingdom had civil laws and justice that came from God. Today, we're not living in Israel and we're not permitted to stone homosexuals. No, God has called us to love them as Christ has loved us. You see, homosexuality is not the worst possible sin in the world. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it is a sin and we need to call sin, sin. Say it like it is. We will not water down, compromise, twist, pervert, or deny the word of God. And God says through the Apostle Paul that men who are consumed with this homosexual passion are consumed by it. Men who have this passion for one another are consumed by it. It becomes their identity. It eats them up. And they become militant homosexuals trying to promote their worldview and their practices. And so they go on parades to show the world how happy they can look. And they call them gay pride parades. They are not ashamed of what they should be ashamed of. And Paul says they are men committing shameless acts with men. They are actually shameful acts, but because these men have given up the glory of God, they see this as shameless. They have no shame. They have pride. And this pride will destroy them. They think they have the right to do this, but they don't. They may try to win your government's approval for gay marriage. They may try to make rules to make it illegal to say anything against homosexuals, to say anything against gay marriage, to say that it is wrong. Be ready for persecution if you are a Christian and stand up for the truth of God, which leads to godliness. But if you are a homosexual committing these sins and you think that you are a Christian approving of these sins, be ready for the wrath of God. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 27 of Romans 1, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is the due penalty for the error of exchanging the glory of God and the natural relationships with women with men? It seems like the very sin of homosexuality is in and of itself a punishment for the man who engages in it. Physically, you do harm to your body. You were not made for this behavior. You were not designed for this type of intercourse. It will result in pain. It can result in diseases, even death. And the guilt that you receive is the due penalty for the error. Bitterness, hatred, feeling unsatisfied with yourself and with others. 
Because God hasn't made you to be satisfied in relationships with other men. He's made you to be satisfied in Him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. But when you distance yourself from God and pursue ungodly passions, you are missing out on what God has for you, and you're hurting yourself. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what's the application? What should we do? What should you do if you're if you find yourself in this sin? You may think, I can't change myself. This is the way I am. So I might as well embrace it. No. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you want to be free from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ. Confess your sin, that it is sin and that it is wrong. And Jesus said, you will need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Rather than giving yourself up to these unnatural desires, you should give up these unnatural desires. Ask God to take them from you and to replace it with a desire to know Him and to have right relationships with other humans. But if you don't trust in Christ and repent, then it will only get worse for you. Romans one twenty eight says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Decisions have consequences. If you don't think it's appropriate to acknowledge God for what He is, then God will give you up. We see this phrase a few times in Romans 1. Romans one twenty four. Therefore, God gave them up. Romans one twenty six. For this reason, God gave them up. Romans one twenty eight. God gave them up. Oh, how I fear being given up on. We should fear God giving us up because that is the wrath of God against our unrighteousness. Rather, we should give ourselves up to the Lord. Give up our sin. Give up your desires. Give up your ways and acknowledge him so that you won't be given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. If you want to call yourself a moral person, it starts with acknowledging the God who has the authority to say what is right and wrong. And he has given us in the scriptures his authoritative word. It's authoritative for our faith and for our practice. So if there's someone listening who wants to say that they are a Bible-believing Christian on one hand and a practicing unrepentant homosexual on the other hand, then you are a hypocrite. You cannot claim to have any moral authority to do so. Then you need to repent. Change your mind. The scriptures say that marriage is between one man and one woman. Jesus said, in the beginning, God created one man and he created one woman and put them together as the institution of marriage, as the model for marriage. And said, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Jesus affirmed heterosexual marriage. The Bible says marriage, and it implies heterosexual marriage because there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Marriage is honorable in the sight of all men, and the marriage bed undefiled. It's natural, it's normal, and it glorifies God, who gave us marriage as a reflection of the close relationship that the church can have with Jesus Christ. As a loving husband, Christ has laid down his life for us that we may be presented to himself as a spotless bride, clothed in white, radiant, bringing glory to him. That is what's right. That is what ought to be done. And it's beautiful when you see a husband and a wife loving one another as Christ loves the church and as the church submits to Christ. That's the way it should be. It doesn't mean that you're going to get married to a person of the opposite sex, but it does mean that you repent of homosexuality because you trust in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge God, and God will not give you up to do what is wrong. He'll lift you up to do what is right. The human mind is capable of great evil. Thus, we need a great God to deliver us. The only way 
to escape is by clinging to the cross of Christ, acknowledging your sinfulness, putting your trust in Jesus Christ. For the righteous shall live by faith, and he can give homosexuals a second chance, forgiveness, restoration, a new life, a new heart, new desires, and a new destiny. If you have committed homosexual sin, you need to go to the cross. You need to take it to Jesus and say, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me and change me. Make me a man of God. I believe Jesus died for this sin and he rose from the dead to conquer it. Amen. chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In Romans chapter 1, Paul introduced the theme of this letter. Romans is about the gospel. And Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, and he's eager to preach the gospel. So after introducing the gospel, Paul tells us why we need the gospel. Romans 1.18 said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is righteous, but men are sinners. The reason why we need to be saved is because of the wrath of God against unrighteousness. And he ends chapter 1 with verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice he uses the word they, 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 and God is going to condemn them. But now he's going to change the pronouns. In chapter 2, he changes the pronouns from they to you. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Who's to blame? It doesn't help one man to point a finger at another person and say, You are a worse sinner than me. Surely you deserve to be judged. Because when you're pointing one finger at someone else, you have three fingers pointing back at you. Oftentimes the thing that you are guilty of looks worse to you on other people than it does on yourself. It doesn't make a difference whether you approve of what's evil or not. If you do the same things, you're condemning yourself. It's like when David sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery and then having Bathsheba's husband murdered to cover it up. When the prophet Nathan came to David, he didn't first say, David, you've committed adultery and murder. He could have, but he brought him a sort of parable. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. So Paul the Apostle speaks in a similar way as Nathan the prophet. First, Paul spoke of the evil things that Gentiles have done. And after showing why God condemns them, he then turns the tables to the Jews and says, So you who know better, you've done the same thing. He says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He says, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves. Both the immoral are condemned and the moralists are condemned. It's not enough just to know what is right and wrong. If you don't do what is right and you do what is wrong, then by your deeds you will be condemned. Because if you judge, you have a standard. What if you use that same standard to judge yourself? This is similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. One of the problems with judging others is that you may be using a false standard, using your own standard rather than God's standard. But the other problem with judging other people is that even if we use God's standard to judge others, by God's standard, we are also judged. And none of us have kept God's standard. When we condemn others for breaking God's law, we're also condemning ourselves for breaking God's law. Which is right. We should be condemned for breaking God's law. doesn't matter if you agree that it's wrong to commit adultery. If you commit adultery, you're condemned as an adulterer. It takes away every excuse. Well, I would have done better if it weren't for... And you fill in the blank. So, Romans 2.2, 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God's judgment is right. We shouldn't change the standard. And he says, why? Because those who practice such things are condemned. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The question is, do you practice such things? Have you done unrighteous in your past? Time doesn't take away sins. Do you have any kind of unrighteousness in your life? Are you planning to practice unrighteousness in your future? If God judged us according to his standard, according to our works, we have no excuse. It doesn't work to say, I try to keep God's law. You fail. By works, all people are already condemned. So salvation isn't by trying. We cannot save ourselves. Well, how does it work? We need someone else to save us besides ourselves. This is why we need the gospel. That's why Jesus came into the world, to save the world. Because apart from him, we're already condemned. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Without faith, you're already condemned. God's wrath is not only against immoral, pagan Gentiles. God's wrath is also against moralists, religionists, and Jews who rely on the law rather than relying on God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So it's not enough to rely on yourself being a judge or a teacher or a moralist. It's not enough to try the best you can. It's not enough to rely on the law. 
The end result of God's law is that it leaves us as sinners. It takes away every claim that I'm a good person. The more we see God as He is, the more we see ourselves as we truly are. Our flesh likes to think of itself highly. We like to think that we are good. We like it when other people think that we are good. But when we look into the mirror of God's law, we see ourselves as dirty. We don't use the mirror to wash away our sins. The mirror points us to the water so that we would wash away our sins. In the same way, God's law points us to Jesus Christ so that our sins can be washed away by His blood. If we put our trust in Him, we will be cleansed from everything that the law could not cleanse us of. We need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift us up. That way He gets the glory. But if we lift ourselves up, then He will oppose us, because He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's backwards from what the world says, and what comes naturally to our flesh. It's backwards from what Satan suggests to us. Many times it's those who are the worst sinners that are the most prepared to receive the gospel. But those who think they are better than other people, they resist coming to the water to wash because they think that they can clean themselves up. They can resolve within themselves to make the right decision. And they can't understand why would they do anything bad because they're such good people. Though they're certainly not good compared to God, their trust is in themselves. My friends, the Bible says those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who are wise will trust in the Lord. So we have to be ready to hear the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. Until we hear the bad news, we're not ready for the good news. It's like when you go to buy a diamond. When you go into a jewelry store, they place shiny golden rings with sparkly diamonds on a black background so that you see the difference between what is bright and shiny compared to what is dark and dull. My friends, we are dark and dull. The light of the glory of God shines through the face of Christ. To appreciate how great Christ is, we need to see how terrible we are. Whether you know God's law or don't know God's law, you have the same nature. You are sinners that cannot save themselves. And so am I. Our only hope is that Jesus Christ would take away our sins. As Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 2, that there is no other escape from the wrath of God. He says, do you suppose, in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You shouldn't suppose that you will escape the judgment of God. If God is a righteous judge, if he judges you fairly, as you say, he will judge other people. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, just because God hasn't punished you yet doesn't mean that he will not punish you in the future. Do not take God's silence or God's patience or his kindness as a sign that you are good. God is kind and rich in forbearance and patience because he's trying to lead you to repentance. He would rather you repent, trust in Christ, and be saved on Judgment Day than to have you feel comfortable in your sin and ultimately perish. The Lord is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Therefore, Jews need to repent. Those who know the Bible also need to repent of their sins. I need to repent for my sins. God's kindness toward us when we are in sin is meant to lead us to repentance. When you see that he's loving to you, even though you don't deserve it, it makes you want to come to him so that he will be kind to you forever in heaven. 
those who do not turn to him in repentance, will enjoy his patience for a little while, but one day his patience will run out, his forbearance will run out, and his kindness will not be extended to those who have not been forgiven of their sins. And the only way that your sins can be forgiven is by trusting in Jesus Christ and being led to repentance. Have you been led to repentance? This repentance comes with a softened heart. The change of mind that changes your heart and your life changes what you're basing your faith on. It changes where you're going after you die. So we can only be saved through Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, by His grace alone, not by ourselves, by our works, or by our merit. So if God has been kind to you by not judging you yet, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sins and of righteousness and of the judgment, then run to Jesus Christ right now. Pray to Him. Say, Jesus, I believe that you lived the sinless life and you died for my sins and took my place. I believe that you rose from the dead and you ascended into heaven and that you hear my prayer right now. Jesus, because I trust in you and not in myself, I ask you to give me your righteousness. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Please justify me before you that I may be accepted by you on judgment day. Help me to always walk with you by faith and give me assurance of the Holy Spirit and assurance of eternal life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Please receive me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 16. Paul reveals God's righteous judgment. Let's read Romans 2, verse 5 through 16. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every man who does evil, for the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 16. And in this section we see that God's judgment will be right and fair if He were to judge us by our works. And this is important for our lives because if God judges you by your works, then how will you do? In context, Paul is explaining why we need the gospel. And we need the gospel because the righteous judgment of God will be revealed against everyone who has sinned. His judgment will be right and fair. And since all of us have sinned, we all deserve to be judged according to our works. That is why we need the good news of the power of God that is able to save us because we need to be saved from the wrath of God that is coming against sinners. How can we be saved? 
I'll share that good news at the end of the message, what God did so that he can save you. But let's look closer at this text for today, as it's been a cause for confusion among many new believers, and it's been used by false teachers to say that some people are good and other people are bad. But notice that Paul is describing two categories of people. Basically, on one side, there's perfect people, perfect Jews and perfect Gentiles. Everybody who patiently does good and never does any wrong. Who does that describe? Well, it's a hypothetical situation, but practically, realistically speaking, only Jesus lived the perfect life. All of us fall in the second category. We have all sinned, both Jews and Gentiles. Whether we are under the law or whether we have the law written on our hearts and we know what is right and wrong in our conscience, we've all sinned. And Paul is working toward that conclusion. But first he wants to deconstruct the idea that anyone can be saved by their works on Judgment Day. So if you hold up an objective black and white standard, hypothetically, God could accept you if all of your works were perfect. If you always did what's right and you never did what's wrong. But in reality, all of us have done things that we know are wrong, and we haven't always done what is right. That's why Paul says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress for everyone who does evil, for all who have sinned. And who has sinned? All have sinned. So there's no one in the first category except for Jesus who would be accepted by his good works. So God is just to condemn the whole world and only to accept Jesus. However, this prepares us for the good news that through Christ, God can see us as in the first category. If we have faith in Christ, then he counts us as righteous as Jesus was counted. Because Jesus fulfilled the law and we trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross and the power of his resurrection, we too can be justified, not by our works, but by Jesus' works. But notice that God will not show partiality. He does not favor the Jews or favor the Gentiles or the Greeks or the Latvians or the Americans. We all stand on equal ground before the cross. Those who have the law do not keep the law, so they are condemned. Those who do not have the law, speaking of Gentiles who haven't heard the Ten Commandments, have a moral compass inside of them, in their hearts, in their minds, and in their conscience. These bear witness to everyone, so that when we do what is right, our conscience tells us, you did a good thing. When we do something that's wrong, our conscience bears witness that it is wrong, and our thoughts go from excusing us to accusing us. Now, God's judgment is not based on a 50% passing grade. The passing grade is 100% righteousness. Those who, by patience in well-doing, seek glory and honor and immortality, everyone who does good all the time, not just hearers, but are doers of the law. The law requires perfection. It's like the man who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. But I'll tell you, if you want to be justified by your works, then keep the laws. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not bear false witness, do not steal, honor your father and mother. And the man said, I've kept all of these things from my youth. And Jesus said, there's one thing that you lack. Go, sell all that you own and give it to the poor. And the man's response, he went away sad because he had much wealth. He loved his possessions more than he loved his neighbor. And he loved mammon more than he loved God. 
It's as Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and mammon. The man thought that he was loving his neighbor as himself. He thought that he was keeping the commandments. But Jesus showed him that he was lacking. The best among us are lacking the righteousness that it takes to get into heaven. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees were those who were trying to be legalistically righteous. They wouldn't even touch a Gentile or anything that they considered unclean so that they wouldn't be defiled. But Jesus said, what defiles you is not what goes in your mouth, the food you eat, but it's what comes out of your heart, through your mouth. This sin comes from within. Therefore, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 6. And so, eternal life is not attained by human effort, good works, being religious. We should do right, but because of the wrong things that we have done, we are disqualified by our works. That's why we need a Savior who lived the perfect life, so that He can credit that to our account in God's eyes, because we trust in Christ. He imputes His righteousness to us. Paul will get there in Romans. But if you're not going to listen the following weeks, I need to tell you in advance that you need Jesus because God's judgment is against you based on your works. So you need another way to be saved. Plan A to get to heaven. Be perfect. Well, that's not going to work because we're already not perfect. So we need a plan B. And I use these phrases loosely. It's not like God really intended for people to be justified by their works. Because since Adam and Eve fell into sin, we've all been born into sin. And we have a sinful nature within our hearts. And that's why we do what's wrong. Whether it's sometimes or all the time, it doesn't matter. If you've ever done anything wrong, if you've broken one law, you are a lawbreaker. It's like you're hanging from a chain and one of the links in the chain breaks. What happens to you? You fall. So you need someone to catch you. Otherwise, you will continue to fall into the depths of hell where there is fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth that burns forever and ever and ever. Notice that Paul says in Romans 2.16, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The judgment of God is according to the gospel of God. How do these two work together? How does God's righteous judgment work according to the gospel of grace? In other words, how can God be both just and gracious? Justice demands that there's payment for crime. Grace provides the payment for your crime. Another important verse that confirms this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, works is not the cause of our salvation. We cannot work our way to heaven. How are we saved then? By grace, meaning we cannot earn it. It's a gift that you have not deserved. And through faith. That means trusting in someone else besides yourself. Faith in who? Faith in Christ alone. Because it's written in Acts that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So call upon Jesus by faith, asking for his grace to justify you. You cannot stand before God trying to excuse yourself by your good works because your bad works accuse you. And God must deal righteously with those who have broken his law. But if we trust in Christ, then God has already poured out his wrath for our sins upon Jesus Christ. Therefore, if God judges you through Christ, according to the gospel, you will be justified. But if God judges you through Christ according to your works, 
Compared to Christ's righteousness, you are a terrible sinner, and you are in deep trouble, and you will experience the wrath of God, His fury, and you will go through tribulation and distress. You will perish, you will be judged and condemned. Peter said that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So you need to repent. You need to trust in Christ. You need to rest upon His righteousness. As Paul said in the introduction, the gospel is the good news. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is given to you who believe. That is why God has sent me to preach the gospel, because God does not want you to perish. Therefore, give up trying to be righteous by your works. Instead, seek the righteousness that comes through faith. That's the only way you will attain to it. Trust in Christ, and you will receive the gift of righteousness and eternal life. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all who believe are justified which means declared righteous. And God, being a just judge, can accept those who are declared righteous. So what is your decision? Will you continue to try to justify yourself by being religious and trusting in your own righteousness? Or will you repent from dead works that are not able to save you? Cast yourself upon the mercy of the court, asking the judge to justify you, to judge you not based on your works, but based on what Christ has done for you. And all you've done is trust in Jesus. It's your decision. Will you trust in your righteousness, leading yourself to judgment and then hell? Or will you trust in Christ's righteousness that leads you to salvation and eternal life? I said before you, life and death. I hope and pray you choose life. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You've been listening to Verse by Verse Bible Studies. My name is Brenton Powers. We've run out of time for today for the Dwell on Truth show. If you'd like to listen to past shows, or you missed part of the show and you want to download this or share it with a friend, you can go to dwellontruth.org and there find the podcast. Or look in your favorite podcast streaming player, Apple, Spotify, Google, Podomatic. That's where it can be found, subscribed to, and shared. And if you would let me know that you've listened to this program and you've been impacted by it, I would be so encouraged. And as it's the season of giving before Christmas, and you want to help extend the reach of this show, you can give at dwellontruth.org slash give is all the different ways that you can give to support this ministry. There's one more way that's not listed on the website in a way that you can give if you are a landowner 
or you own a house or apartment or a trailer in the Monterey Bay area, and you're looking for someone reliable, a family that loves God to serve as your tenants, my family and I are looking for a new place to rent. We believe God's calling us to stay in the Monterey Bay area, and we just need another place to live that's affordable and reliable, somewhere between Monterey and Santa Cruz. So give me a call at 831-594-2633. I may be on another call, so leave a message, and I would love to talk with you. 831-594-2633. So thanks so much for responding to this effort that I call Dwell on Truth. Quick announcement. Today, I will be at Calvary Chapel Aptos at 10 a.m. You're welcome to come. I won't be teaching the whole service, but I will be sharing for about 10 minutes about our ministry as we are seeking to build up churches around the Monterey Bay area and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're a believer and you want to learn how to share your faith, come on out today. Or if you'd like to just meet us and see what we do out on the streets and beaches, we'll be at Seacliff Beach today, down by where you can freely park and walk on the cement path to the beach starting at 1.30 p.m. And now, may God richly bless you as you continue to dwell on truth. Have a great day. For more, go to dwellontruth.org.